You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, yo, yo. Hey guys, welcome back to another awesome edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. My name is Kirk Barron. We have one goal, one goal, and only one goal is to bring you the best thinkers in all of dentistry to help improve your life today and your practice and everybody wins. And today we're going to bring on a great mentor of mine, long-term friend, Dr. Jim McKee from Spear Education. He talks about how to help patients make good choices and how your thinking and treatment planning changes over time. It is brilliant. You do not want to miss this. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We'll see you soon. Hey guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. You know my jam here. I have one goal, to bring on some of the world's best educators to get you to think, to improve your practice and improve your life. And we're going to do exactly that today with my good friend, Dr. Jim McKee from Chicago. Jim, thanks for being on, brother. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Kurt. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I'm just telling you guys, if you've never met Jim before, prepare for your brain to be changed. Now, I'll tell you why. Jim is an amazing human being and an awesome clinician, fantastic teacher. He's, he teaches out at Spear Education. And Jim's an important part of my journey. When I had no money and I was kind of broke just trying to figure out how to get into this dental profession, Jim picked me up in his car, took me to a lecture and said, you're going to be okay. And I was like sweating like crazy. And so it's been fun to be with you on this journey and watch how you influence not only my life, but everybody else's life. And I want people to know if somebody's listening for the first time, who's Dr. Jim McKee? Like, Jim, who are you? What do you do? You know what? I'm a restorative dentist who had a small neighborhood practice. And I started to see cases that I wasn't comfortable with. And generally, over the years, as a practice has evolved to a restorative practice, they started to take a closer look at occlusion is really how it started. And ultimately, when I started looking at occlusion, that brought me to a different journey in terms of looking at the joints as well. So basically, I'm a dentist who, um, I love restorative dentistry, and I have a restorative practice, not a TMD practice like a lot of people think, but I have a restorative practice that sees a lot of TMD patients because they're all over in our, in our practices. You know, it's kind of like we joke about it. Once you start seeing them, it's like the night of the living dead. They're everywhere. <laughs> so that's been a really fun part of being able to solve treatment plans. And that's kind of what we're going to talk today about is helping make patients make good choices 
when it comes to those types of decisions. Yeah. So I've had a blast practicing. I started teaching a long time ago. I never thought I'd be teaching. It's a really fun part of my professional life. So I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed both sides of it a lot. Yeah. Now I have a special place in my heart for Jim. As you guys are listening to this, you're going to see you practice in the Chicago area. And, um, you know, we used to joke that I don't know if Jim's a dentist, like I've looked him up online. I can't find him anywhere, but you have a crazy, you had a crazy busy practice. You know, once you get really good at something, you get known for something and you, um, you start to attract other people like I have heard you do this kind of stuff. So, I'm telling you as a dentist, you know, don't worry about too much of the market. Just focus on being good at something, doing it the right way. And then the word that catches fire from that is tremendous. And um, it's interesting to talk about that because I hear a lot of, especially young dentists say, I need to be busier. I need to be busier. I'm not busy enough. So I have to sign up with an insurance company. Right. And that may be good or bad, but ultimately I was able to get busy because everyone looks for a niche in their practice. Sometimes it's implants, sometimes aesthetics, sometimes it's airway. Mine ended up being occlusion. And actually, it was kind of dumb luck. I wish I could say that I planned it, but no one wants to do occlusion. Mm -hmm. It's the thing we're least comfortable with coming out of dental school. No one wants to do joints either because we've been told the patients are all crazy and they grind and clench their teeth, so you can't help them anyway. Not true. But from a restorative perspective, understanding inclusion touches every case you see every day. And all of a sudden now, when the word started to get out that I was willing to see occlusal patients, basically the phone didn't stop ringing. And a lot of those patients ended up being restorative treatment plans. And when I would call the referring dentist to say, here's what I'm thinking we should be doing from a restorative perspective, do you want to do this? Almost universally, the answer was no. So really what it did, unbeknownst to me at the beginning, it really was a marketing tool that brought a lot of restorative cases into my practice, a lot of ortho cases. So at a relatively young age, I was able to gain a lot of experience on complex treatment planning that I didn't have before I started doing this type of dentistry. And, you know, everyone hears a complex treatment planning and they think it's going to be a full mouth reconstruction. Not true. You know, I've done a lot of full mouth reconstructions, two crowns at a time. And it may take six, seven years to do the whole case, but it was done at a pace that the patient could afford to do it, both maybe financially and emotionally sometimes, because sometimes patients really aren't ready to make that full commitment. Right. That's what I mean about helping make patients make good choices. What I did in the early years, I would do the two crowns and I'd forget about the rest of the case. What's changed is if we keep the patient's best interest in the forefront of our treatment planning thought process, that was what forced me to learn how to phase treatment. Mm -hmm. And once I could phase treatment, my case acceptance went up because face it, you're going to do a full mouth rehab or someone needs that level of dentistry, whatever it is, that's a big ask. And a lot of times patients simply can't do it. So therefore, it becomes helpful as a dentist if you can break that down into stages. You know, there's an old saying that every full mouth rehabilitation is one crown. On, it's a number of single unit crowns on the same patient. So if you can start breaking it down to make it easier for you too, I really enjoy starting to take on more complex cases yeah. because I had, I had the knowledge base 
but I was also able to phase it so I could make it easier for the patient, quite frankly, easier for me. Yeah. I heard a, I heard a story a long time ago. I was teaching at the Panky Institute and a dentist said something that I'll never forget. He goes, I try never to take an impression of more than 16th at a time because for Crown and Bridge, if you're going to take a full arch impression, that's a, that's a lot to do and to keep everything dry and get accurate margins. The key to being able to do that, though, is having good provisionals. Mm-hmm. And once you can master that, and you've had so many people talk about that over the years, you know, then you can start to break those cases down to help patients make good decisions. So yeah. that's a, a long answer to a short question. Oh, I love this. And as we were breaking this apart, I just, I absolutely love this topic. And so if you're a young dentist, you're going to see the evolution of what happens in your career. You change your thinking as you get started. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about the why, because, and Jim, speak to both sides of the fence. So what if I'm a young dentist listening and I'm like, Jim, I understand, but I'm all PPO. Like, I, I want to start this journey. And what you're talking about is leaning in the right direction and talk about the evolution and the why behind this. You know, the evolution of the practice really is, you know, it's the old, you know, it's the old saying, how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. It's one patient at a time. You know, when we talk out at Spirit in the advanced occlusion works, I said, your homework going home is to find one patient a month for the next six months that you can implement the things we talked about. Mm-hmm. Because once you do it, you're going to see as a dentist, you're going to enjoy it more because you're getting answers to problems that we never had answers to before. And whatever, the, whatever, whatever you enjoy doing in practice, whether it's occlusion and joints and restorative, whether it's airway, whether it's implants, whatever it is, if you can become an expert in it, You can start to build a practice. But, you know, we were talking a little bit before. There's a technical and a non-technical side of it as well because everyone goes to CE classes. And when I went to a CE class, I was always a little disappointed if I wasn't stretched because I I was going to be challenged. I wanted to learn more. I want to learn things I wasn't doing. So the difficulty was going home and implementing it, though. That's that's the issue. That's why, you know, we were talking as consulting companies like yours I think are critical to the discussion of implementation because it helps the dentist implement. Now, some dentists will like to devote that time and do it themselves. Some people will outsource it to a consultant. However you do it, there has to be a set of systems in your office, a workflow if you want to think about it that way, from how the phone is answered, how the exam is taken, or how the history is taken, how the exam is done. Because by the end of that new patient examination, In our practice, I need to be ready to do a case presentation for whether they need diagnostic records. That's really the key. So at the end of that new patient exam, I leave an hour for our new patients. If it's a complex patient that's referred in, maybe I'll leave an hour and a half. The first part of that is taking a history and then doing an education, small part with the patient based upon what their needs are. If they don't have any needs, then I don't have to do that. But if they have a joint issue, I'm going to explain joints. If they have an airway issue, I'm going to explain airway. If they have a restorative issue, I'm going to explain restorative. But I'm starting to have a discussion with them to raise their knowledge level because, quite frankly, they can't make good choices if they don't have a knowledge base to support that decision. So part of our job is helping them understand what they need to do. 
Yeah. Because otherwise, what are they going to do? They're going to choose the cheapest option because in their minds, a dentist is a dentist is a dentist. Right. And a crown is a crown is a crown. They look at it as a commodity-based thought process simply because that's logical for them to do that. I get that. Yeah. We all know, though, that it's more than a commodity, especially with the cases that we're seeing today. Right. Now, can I go? I want to go back to a couple of things because sure. this is brilliant. So you talk about this. You go to a course. You expect your brain to be challenged. You should oh. be stressed going to this. But there's an elephant in the room. It's the limiter. You've already cured. There's a limitation because most dentists go as sponges. They're like, I've seen this. I understand it. The limiter when they go back is verbal skills. You mentioned like what separates, I've heard somebody say this and I don't know who said it, but I think it was a panky. I heard somebody say this, like your ability to communicate will determine how far you go. Ultimately, Would you agree with that? The verbal skills are the elephant in the room. The interesting thing is when I was a young dentist, I saw a lot of dentists who would go to continuing education, quite frankly, spend a lot of money on it, but they couldn't come back and explain it. And therefore, if you can't explain it, continuing education becomes an expense, not an investment. Continuing education should always be an investment in the future of your practice. And honestly, if you look at it from a financial perspective, There is no better return on investment that I have had in my personal life than the money I spent on continuing education. And I've spent a lot over the years, but it allowed me to have such a different vision of dentistry than I had before I went to the CE program, whatever the CE program was, that then the challenge was to go back and implement. And honestly, you know, I started the study club 32 years ago when I was going to Dawson and Panky. That was my roots, really. And the goal, the, the purpose of the study club was to implement things we were learning. Yeah. You know, I think when you go to courses, your mind is stretched. For me, study club learning was critical for my implementation because you had a group of like-minded dentists and they were all trying to do the same thing. So we did a lot of systems work. We did a lot of verbal skills. That small group learning for me was very effective after having the concepts exposed to me on a larger scale. Right. So that's kind of the way we did it. Yeah. So I I totally agree with you on the CE thing. Now, if you're a dentist listening, you know, Jim is exactly right. Never begrudge the money you invest in your own learning. And a lot of times dentists look at it as the cost. I'm like, dude, you got to understand there's two huge benefits you can't see. Number one, it keeps your fire in your belly a lot. Like you come back on fire. Number two, you're saving thousands and thousands of hours, like trying to figure it out on yourself. There's no dollar amount. You're in a room of cl- with clinicians, with their collective experience. You're talking about 130 years of collective experience on restorative dentistry. Why would you even say to yourself, I know it better than these guys and gals do? And you know, the other thing from a financial situation, Kirk, when you really think about it, looking back, what continuing education was for me was really a marketing tool. Mm. You know, it's interesting because dentists market to patients. What I ended up doing with occlusion and joints really led to not marketing, but positioning your practice in your community so that when a dentist had a situation that came up, they would call our office. Right. So really, instead of, trying to gain a new patient flow from existing patients. Again, I didn't plan this, but ultimately it came from 
dentists in the community. And I'll tell you, dentists are going to send you more patients than patients will. Yeah, that's so, so true. Sudden, you know, I, it wouldn't be uncommon to get three new patients from an office one day. If it was an ortho office that was having a problem with the occlusion of the joints, the phone didn't stop ringing. Yeah. So really, continuing education almost became a marketing tool, if you want to think about it like that. I don't like the word marketing in the sense, I think, positioning. I heard that at the Seattle Study Club Symposium, and I can't remember who said it either. But positioning your practice is really different than marketing it. Positioning makes you're the person in the community that someone thinks of when they have an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's eventually what happened with our practice. That's honestly why, you know, we kind of laugh. I did no marketing all these years. And we're as busy as we could be. Yeah. So that was the money that I would have put into marketing. I just shifted to CE and I had money left over when you look at the average practice spends on marketing. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, you know, talking about helping patients make good choices, uh, you mentioned, you know, Panky and Dawson. Pete Dawson has a great quote. It was a pivotal moment for you to hear Pete say that. Can you explain what it was and how it influenced your development? I was a young dentist sitting in Pete's class and I said, you know, that works for Pete Dawson, but it, it won't work in Downers Grove, Illinois. I'm just in the suburb outside of Chicago. He said something, though, that the minute I heard it, it changed my thought process. Every dentist has those watershed moments in their career. This was absolutely one of them. Pete said the average intelligent patient wants a healthy mouth. And they're going to do what's necessary to achieve it as long as they understand the problem and your solution makes sense. I got to tell you, it was unbelievably profound at that point in my career. It's exactly what I needed to hear. Tell us why, though. Like, why? how did that impact you? Because I needed to understand the problem before I could explain it to the patient. And I had to explain it to the patient in a way they understood it before they could say yes to the solution. Mm-hmm. So it forced me to understand the conceptual part of it, but it forced me to develop the verbal skills to explain it to the patient so they could go home and talk to their spouse and say, okay, here's what we talked about at my consult today. Here's what I think we should do. Yeah. So that's the, that's the toughest part. Yeah. It's not the dentistry, it's the verbal skills. That's yeah. the hard part. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, here comes the sweet stuff, because this is where you can apply all this. Well, you know, As, there's an old saying, you know, dentistry, well, we'll keep going. I'll come back to that later. Okay, so, so I, I, I'm, I have 30 questions. on. As you mature and evolve and learn more about your hands, you know, how you communicate, you connect with patients, you're going to change the way you treatment plan. You know, it's going to change the way you look at cases. So can you talk about, you don't treatment plan the way you used to. No, I was a single tooth dentist because that's what we were taught. You know, I always said dental school is like going to auto mechanic school, but all they fix is, all they tell you is how to fix the carburetor. (laughs) So you get real good at carburetors or you get real good at exhaust systems. You get real good at different parts. Putting them together, I think was the change in my treatment plan. Hearing people like Bill Robbins talk about global diagnosis, hearing people like Frank Spear talk about facially generated treatment planning, hearing people like Pete Dawson talking about the top 10 things you need to know about occlusion. All those reshaped my thinking from a crown on number nine or number 18 
to simply, okay, this tooth is part of a system. It's got an overload problem or a decay problem. I need to restore it. How does that fit into the system now? Because what was happening was the more dentistry I started to do, the more problems I had because I was treating cases that were more complex than I was probably trained for. Once that information became more understood in my head, dentistry became more fun because I wasn't having as many problem cases. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'll tell you, that process doesn't stop today. Yeah. I mean, I'm treatment planning differently today than I did six months ago because there's a new evolution of knowledge in the profession. You hear someone say it one way, you work that into your discussion. It's an ever-evolving thing. It's like polishing a gold crown. You're never really done. Yeah. You can always be a little shinier. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go a layer deeper on this and even get super specific. I want you to talk about, you know, you used to do a really comprehensive exam and then you would withhold your solution until the consult. And now you do it a little bit differently or a lot differently. You're not withholding like the big solution to the end. Well, part of the problem was too, I didn't know the solution at that point. I couldn't look at a case and break it down the way I can today. But you know, the real reason why I didn't talk about when I was a young dentist? Dentists, we all fear rejection. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get a no out of the treatment plan. So I put it off and kicked the can down the road. What I realized is I wasn't giving the patient enough information so they could make a good choice. Once I started front-loading the education at the beginning of the exam, as opposed to trying to do it at all at the consultation appointment, they could have time to process it. They could have time to think about it. So generally what we do now is we have an initial exam. That consists of a consultation where I take their history And then if it's a problem that's a restorative or joint problem, I'm going to talk about six things. Talk about the design of the system, how it's put together, joints, muscles, teeth. I'm going to talk about the condyle, medial, and lateral pole. Medial pole is the load-bearing part of the joint, so it's important we have soft tissue coverage there. Number three is I'm going to walk through the stages of joints. Normal joints, clicking joints, locking joints, perforated joints. It's a real easy way because patients most of the time will have a click or used to click. So they start to understand the process. I'm going to talk about the three types of joints. Is it structurally intact where the disc is attached on both sides? Is it clicking where it's off on one side, a partially herniated disc? Or is it off on both sides, a fully herniated disc? These are the higher risk factors because we don't have coverage of the bone. And if All patients can adapt, but if we have problems, it's generally in that last phase, and they usually present as something that hurts or something that doesn't fit. Something hurts, it's either going to be muscle or joint, could be neck or sympathetic, so there's basically four things we have to think about for pain. You know, we can do that. That's not that hard. And then the last thing is how the teeth fit together. And the easiest, the most common clinical presentation of a structural to join is the class two occlusion. So if it's a class two occlusion, it raises my antenna. So, but those six things, the patient has to understand. Now, if they come in with a problem, it makes it way easier. If this is a new patient who moved into the neighborhood and needed, needs a cleaning, I'm not doing this. 
Right. So each patient has kind of a customized experience in the office based upon what their dental needs are. Frank Spear calls it filtering. At the new patient phone call, you're filtering what the patient needs from your practice, and then you're bringing them into the practice based upon their needs. If right. it was a cookie cutter approach and you did it for everyone, which I used to do, quite frankly, you know, after 20 minutes, people are starting to check their phone, they're getting zoned out. You know, that's not connecting with the patient. Connecting with the patient is having a conversation based upon what their needs are, not what I want to talk about. Right. So from there, by the end of the exam, they're ready to say, okay, what do we need to do to find out what type of joint I have? Yeah. That's the goal was to give them enough information where they're almost asking for the solution. I'm going to lead them right up to the cliff so they can look over and see the promised land. Well, that's our next appointment. (laughs) Yeah. And you're okay if they don't say yes. And, you know, I think your confidence comes from designing the systemic approach to how you connect with patients. And when Spear talks about filtering, that's exactly. And your confidence grows as you stick to your system more and more and more. Because you become more comfortable in your communication routine. Right. It becomes, it becomes an easier discussion because you've had it this week on Tuesday afternoon. And you know how it went Tuesday afternoon and now it's Thursday morning. I'm going to tweak something a little bit here and see how it goes with the patient. I'm going to explain it a little bit different way. Yeah. But ultimately, the other thing is that patients come to you in a different way. You know, when I was having patients find me in the yellow pages and come into the office, those patients had a level of commitment that was variable. Mm-hmm. Generally, if patients are coming to you for a reason, their commitment level tends to be higher. Yes. Now, that's not always true, but it's pretty generalized truth that when patients are coming to you for a reason, they tend to be less sensitive to scheduling, to finances, because you're providing a service they had a harder time getting somewhere else. You know, looking back on it, I've always said that learning inclusion and joints is the fastest way to build a practice because no one wants to do it. Yeah. And there's enough patients in every community that need this where you could easily become the go-to person and be busy almost instantly. I yeah. mean, that's been, well, all the study clubs I've worked with, all the dentists I've worked with immediately will say they get busier, they get busier, they get busier. And it's not just a joint case, it's the restorative cases as well. Yeah. So if you like doing restorative dentistry, which I loved, this was a wonderful way to bring a pool of patients in that I would not have had access to prior to looking at joints. Yeah. Now go back to this. I want to go back to this because this is brilliant. We're going to put all the pieces together for you if you're sure. listening. Is, you know, Jim, what you did in your career, you talk about creating a different way. You know, the reason the patients come in. As you, you get a reputation by what you do and you lean into your system and you said something brilliant before we hit the go button. You know, the, the, the hot conversation now is private practice versus DSO. You know, is private practice drying up? No, it's not. Show me the data. There's no data saying it's dry. You said, don't think like that. Think about becoming a diagnostic practice. Don't think about private practice or DSO. Try to become a, can you explain that and how that leads into getting patients in a different way? Kind of goes back to what I said before about modules for what people come in with. The diagnostic practice model in my practice is one column of production for the doctor and a second column of production for the assistant. And then you have your hygienist as well. Now, the reality is my assistants will out produce my hygienist every day of the week because of diagnostic records. Wow. Because in order to do this type of practice, 
the patient can't make a good decision until they have enough diagnostic information to do it because you can't offer good solutions until you have enough information to do it. And ultimately, if the patient's in that third category where the bone's not protected, those are the patients generally we need more treatment planning information on. And therefore, I'll spend an hour to an hour and a half with those patients. They'll come back for a two-hour diagnostic records appointment, which consists of a cone beam, diagnostic photographs, and scanning so we can print models of their 3D models of their bite. Then it's a consultation after that. So it's a three-appointment process. But when you add up the number of hours that I am with the patient, basically, you have to get your feet to a point where it doesn't matter whether you're prepping teeth or whether you're diagnosing cases. But if you can do that by creating a consult appointment that addresses their issues and you can give them enough good information on the follow-up in terms of a letter and recapping what we talked about, all of a sudden now your referrals just go through the roof. Yeah. You can't, you, you won't have enough time to see everyone. That's, that's the issue. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened in my practice. So when you start to, to talk about how that workflow goes, that's how it processed through the practice. But ultimately they have to have enough information so they can make a good choice. Yeah. And can you speak to this too? There's no shortage of this kind of work to be done. This kind of work isn't drying up. You, of course, know Jeff Rouse. Jeff's one of the the leaders in dentistry, and Jeff and I are great friends. We've lectured together at Spear. We've lectured together at the Restorative Academy. We did a lecture last September at the Spear Summit that was titled, Are We Treating the Same Patient? In fact, I think we might have done it during COVID, um, or it was right around that time. But ultimately, Jeff's seeing, joint, Jeff's seeing patients from an airway perspective. I'm seeing patients from a joint perspective. When I started looking at airway, I saw the way that Jeff was looking at them. And when Jeff started to look and see the joints, he saw the way I was looking at them. Jeff's going to tell you there's no shortage of airway patients. I'm going to tell you all those air, not all those airway patients, but a lot of those airway patients have joint issues as well. In fact, I'm, I'm going to come right out and say it. I don't think you can effectively diagnose and treat airway today unless you understand the condition of the joint. Right. There's, there's too many situations where there's been a structural loss at the joint level that ultimately leads to a structural lack of projection of the mandible and maxilla, which is why many times we have the compressed airway space. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if it's an airway patient. It's not as if it's a joint patient. It's not as if it's a restorative patient. It's everything. You know, dentistry has gotten bigger since I've become a dentist. We just used to have to look at the teeth. Then when aesthetics started becoming important in the 90s, we had to start looking at the gums because we had to get the gums in the right position. Then we had to start looking at airway. Then we had to start looking at joints. It's become a bigger process, which is why many times the diagnostic model of practice management is extremely effective today. Because whether you're diagnosing joints, whether you're diagnosing airway, whether you're doing restorative, that second appointment allows you to have enough time to create a really nice relationship with the patient, get all the diagnostic information you need. So when they come in for their consultation, they know they're not getting that anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, that's, and it, it makes it hard for them to say no. 
Yeah. It makes it easy for them to make a good decision because they've been educated to the point where they know now the difference between what they're looking at as treatment options. Yeah. You use a magic word right there. Go back to that decision. You know, the patient is ultimately making this. A lot of people teach this, but you know this if you're a dentist. When you push a patient to do treatment, it's your treatment. What you're talking about is like, I'm going to lead them right up to the cliff and then they're going to decide to do this. Talk about the difference in me de- helping you decide this versus you deciding to do this. Me helping you decide on this is selling. That's how I felt when I was a young dentist. Pete Dawson said it best. Do you want to sell crowns or do you want to get have people get a healthy mouth? Mm. That's, that was another Pete quote that changed my thinking because I was selling crowns because that was the commodity I had to sell. Right. Once I started to have a different thought process about helping people get a healthy system, it forced me to think about how the whole car worked and not just the carburetor. That's that really, I think. And if that's the case, that allows you to kind of step back and say, here's your option. And maybe your best option this time is to do nothing. Let's revisit in six months. But to be able to do that, a dentist can't be in need. And basically, I'm talking about financial need. You know, I saw a lot of young dentists get out of school, buy big houses, buy big cars, join country clubs, get the second vacation house. And all of a sudden now, when they went to the consultation, the patient had to say yes because they had two mortgages to pay or they had whatever. L.D. Pinky said it's a lot easier to go into a consultation with a few bucks in your pocket because you're not under need now. It doesn't, you know, there was another L.D. quote. He said it can never be more important. It can never be more important for the patient to accept the treatment plan for the dentist than it is for the patient. And many times, if you can keep your overhead, personal overhead low, it gives you choice at the office. You don't have to treat the difficult patient. You don't have to stretch the treatment plan to do it. You can easily say, hey, look, here's, here's what it is. Yeah. And here's option A. Here's the pros and cons of that. Here's option B. Here's the pros and cons of that. Here's option C. Here's the pros and cons of that. That actually is different than I used to do because I was taught give one treatment plan. Um, I've, I've changed on that the older I've gotten because – Part of it will be reading the patient. If the patient's value level is still relatively low, I'm going to start with basically phase one therapy. What I used to do is to do the whole treatment plan and blow them out of the water. So I'll do phase one therapy, get things healthy, start to raise their level of awareness, and then I'll move up the line. However, once patients start coming to you for a specific reason, most of the time that value is at a higher level. Yeah. If you start down here, they're thinking, you know what? I need a more sophisticated clinician. So they, you have to read the patient to see where to start the discussion process. I don't care where they are. I'll meet them where they are. But I need to know whether I'm starting on the first floor or I'm starting on the 10th floor. Yeah. That's, I think, the key to connecting with a patient. Because if, if they're on the first floor and you start on the 10th floor, they feel like they're being sold. Because you're, they're being presented something, they don't understand the problem, so your solution doesn't make sense, as we talked about earlier, what Pete said. 
Yeah. And I'm just telling you guys, if you listen very carefully to Jim and follow these processes, you could have a great life like he does, which means you just talk to somebody like me on a Friday morning and then you golf Friday afternoon and just have, that's it. That's you the can day. get away from dentistry and enjoy the things that matter. So, uh, I, you know, I, I want, you know, I want you to address this in just a second. Like if I'm a dentist listening, my brain is already hurt and I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I know you guys have a study club. I want you to talk about what you're doing at Spear, but I want you to kind of just put a bow on this. Any last thoughts you have on, you know, how to help patients make good choices as you look at a career of restorative dentistry? You know, that's a great question. I think ultimately put the patient's needs first. That means you have to have a practice that has reasonable numbers to make it work. But if you put the pay, you know, and I always heard this easy young dentist and I'm thinking, oh, that's easy to say. This guy's been busy for years. He's got enough money saved or it's not a problem. That was not my situation. You know, um, I didn't come from financial means. So it was a case of where you needed to start saving money at an early age and starting to let it build up. If you can, if you can do that as a dentist, I think it makes a huge difference because it allows you to give your patients choices. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what I think it's about, I think it's about being in a position where, as I said before, you can educate patients in a very effective way so that they can make a good choice. And if you're getting solid clinical training, which people who work with you are, and you implement the things that you're learning, whether it's with Bill, whether it's with Jeff, whether it's with John Coyce, whether it's with Frank Spear, whether it's at the Dawson Academy, the Pankey Institute, you're going to have a framework in your practice that now you can build from to be able to help patients help patients make good choices. Because that's what it's all about. It's about the patient. It's not about us. We're there to help. That's, that's really, I, that's what I see our role as. Amen, brother. You never stop helping. Like I look at the excitement that you have at this stage of your career. You got to bottle that up and give that some to me. But uh, you're always doing. I think you did lo- pretty well, Kirk. <laughs> uh, well, by osmosis, that's my word. It's like just hanging around with people like you. It, you know, changes the way I see things, and so yeah. that's a great lesson for anybody. Just hang around with people. You're going to change the way you think. It's going to oh. make you optimistic. The glass is going to be half full. It's not going to be half empty. Yep blah, blah, blah. You just, and you see the world differently. You know, um, you and I both share Bill Robbins as a great mutual friend. And I think the favorite thing Bill has ever said to me, and I just, I think about it all the time. We were having a drink at the bar, Seattle Cycle Club. And he grabbed me, he goes, Kirk, you know what our ultimate responsibility is? I'm like, no, what is it, brother? He's like, to leave the campfire in better condition than we found it. So while you're out speaking, while you're out doing what you're doing, let's leave this profession better. Then we found it. I'm like, you're my guy, man. That's totally, you're speaking my jam. And so I want you guys to think about that, whether it be in your practice, whether it be with your family, whether it be with your, you know, profession, this is what this whole thing is all about. Um, I want you to talk about Spear. Like, what are you doing out there? I also want you, I, you're, you're always doing something new, this new study club that you got. I got Drew on the show after this. So I want you to speak about what both of those are. If I'm a dentist listening, how do I get involved? Uh, Spear Education, we're back at it now. We're doing live workshops. So I, I teach the Advanced Occlusion Workshop at Spear. And then Frank and I and Greg Kinzer do the Occlusion Seminar. So basically, you'll get the basics. You'll get the foundation in the seminar. Occlusion, the first Occlusion uh, Workshop is basically making the assumption that the joints are relatively stable. The second Occlusion Workshop, the one that I teach with Gary DeWood, 
um, is one that addresses not only normal joints, but structurally altered joints as well. We do a lot of treatment planning. We do a lot of verbal skills. It's a, it's a fun three days. It's, it's gotten really nice reviews. Um, it's encouraged people to change their practices in a very positive way. Um, I started a new study club actually with Drew and with Seth Atkins and Kurt Ringhofer. And it was really a way to help dentists implement joint-based restorative-based concepts in their practice. So our format is it's a two-day meeting. It's a live meeting, and it's one in the spring and one in the fall. The first day, we do joints and occlusion, and the second day, we're going to bring in speakers. Um, some of those speakers might be the faculty like us in the study club program, or we're going to bring in whoever the club wants to hear. So it's really a cool format. I love study club formats. Um, if you want any information, you can email me at jim at mckeedds.com. Uh, easy, jim at mckeedds.com, and I can give you information. Um, the study club, we're keeping relatively small, so we're going to keep a tight group on that. Um, we have a wonderful group. We had our first meeting in October. We're meeting again. Are we first meeting in May in Chicago? It's always going to be in Chicago. And then we're having our second meeting in October. Um, it's a great two days. It's in Oak Brook, which is right between O'Hare and Midway, so it's easy to get to. Nice suburban area, hotel right across the street. You can take an Uber there from the airport. You don't need a car. Restaurants are right there. It's it's a nice situation. So, and it's a great group of people that we're teaching with. You know, Kurt Ringhofer is a member of the Restorative Academy and a past president of the American Equilibration Society. Seth Atkins is a fabulous digital dentist just south of Dallas. And you guys all knew Drew. You know, he's, I think, the the sharpest orthodontist in the country on diagnosing joint-based considerations, probably the world, to be completely honest. He's changed his practice in a relatively short amount of time, and he's really changing the face of orthodontics. So he's an awesome. So the four of us have a great time planning, and it's really, it's it's fun CE. Yeah, I want to come. I'm having FOMO. You can come anytime you want. There you so, go. And, and no one can say, I can't get to Chicago. You're just lying. You know, you know that's why we're doing it in Chicago, honestly. Because yeah. most of the time it's a direct flight for most people. Yeah. So we don't, you know, for years I taught with Mark Piper in St. Pete, Florida. If you're on the West Coast, that's a long day of travel. Mm -hmm. You know, so Chicago's easy from both sides of the country. So we have people from the United States, we have people from Canada. It's it's a wonderful group of people. We honestly, everyone who is a part of that was hand selected by the faculty. So awesome. we chose who we wanted to have in it. So it's really cool. It's uh, kind of like your practice. It's kind of like creating a, a preferred patient base in your practice. That's really what it was like. Yeah. You so. guys, I'm, I'm just going to encourage you to check it out. If you haven't been taking a notes while Jim's been chatting, don't worry. Our team has been taking notes. So if you're listening on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, doesn't matter. Flip up to the show notes. You're going to see everything Jim has mentioned. It's right there. You're going to see Jim's email address. You'll see more about Spear Education and those courses. You can just flip up to the notes. You'll click right on the link. It'll take you right there and generate an email a right to Jim. Please do that. I promise you it'll make your practice and your life better. Jim, as always, thanks for being on, brother. So fun to be with you, Kirk. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to be on the the podcast. I just love it. Um, and I want to thank you for everything you do for dentistry. You know, you, your name came up the other night. People talking about how appreciative they were of your efforts during the shutdown. When you put all of those courses together, I, I want to thank you for everything that you do. It's, it's great to have a long time friendship with you and I can't thank you enough. Hey, well, the pleasure is all mine and thanks go right back to you because 
you're one of those people I roped in and I'm like, Jim, I need some help. Like I needed you. I, I'll just continuously say this. I needed you guys as much as we all needed yeah. each other. Like I, I uh, see is just a wonderful place to learn I, more about yeah. this great profession, about yourself, about others, but it's just, it's, it's just amazing. Like this profession. Well, I, look, I look forward to the next time we're on this again. So oh, I'm going to volunteer you for, episodes again I'm and in. again I'm in whatever before you retire we're gonna squeeze you like a sponge and get in. everything out so awesome <laughs> well stick around we say goodbye to everybody else but thank you guys for listening to the best practices show hey if you enjoyed today which i know you did just do us a favor hit the share button share it with your friends keep sending us suggestions for things that you guys want to see you're gonna see i got a whole bunch of them lined up already uh, and great programming for the rest of the year, well into the fall. You guys are going to love it. So until we see you guys next time, or you hear from us next time, keep watching the best practices show. You guys enjoy your day. So there you have it. Another great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for showing up. I just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, could you do me a favor? Could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm gonna spend the rest of my professional life finding great information so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.